Morning, church. Welcome once again to By Grace Community Church. We're thrilled that you're here to worship with us, whether you're joining us here in person or you're joining us on the live stream. We're glad that you are tuning in to be with us as we delight in being with our Lord. Amen? Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of 2 Samuel. Today we're going to continue our study going verse by verse through 2 Samuel in chapter 21. This is God's word, written, recorded, passed down, and given to us, that we might receive it as the very words of God. 2 Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of Yahweh. And Yahweh said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of Yahweh? The Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us, between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I should do for you? And they said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, that we may hang them before Yahweh at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of Yahweh. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan because of the oath that Yahweh because of the oath of Yahweh that was between them between David and Jonathan the son of Saul the king took the two sons of Rispa the daughter of Aiah whom she bore to Saul Armoni and Mephibosheth and the five sons of Merib the daughter of Saul whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahethalite, and gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites. And they hanged them on the mountain before Yahweh. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Ritzbah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Ritzbah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, 
where the Philistines had hanged them on the day that the Philistines had killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we gather here, we do so to sing praises to our King. We do so to offer prayers, extraordinary and ordinary, because all of our life is yours. Lord, we acknowledge coming in this morning that we bear burdens and distractions. We ask that you would take them from us, not just in the minutes ahead or the hours of today, Father, we ask that you would take our burdens from us and that you would give to us hearts that are trusting in your circumstances, your providence, your goodness, and also your power and justice. Come and show yourself to us. In this text, we pray, and all God's people agree. This is a brutal chapter. Let's just acknowledge that up front. It's a brutal challenger. But it is not an appendix, as some commentators have thought. This is not some meaningless extra, as many have argued. These final chapters of 2 Samuel 21, 22, 23, and 24, these final chapters are the climax of what this author has been driving at for these enormous volumes. Can we remember this morning that scrolls were incredibly rare and expensive? And to have written and copied and recopied and recopied and recopied these manuscripts from generation to generation to generation both in preserving what's already have what they already have but also propagating it so others and other families and other people would be able to have and cherish it as well these final chapters are the climax not the appendix this is the final wrap up of what the author has been driving at this whole time first samuel second samuel In these last four chapters, the author is asking and answering the question, how are we to regard God's kingdom as it exists under David's rule? How are we to regard God's kingdom as it exists under David's rule? It's important for us to to laser in and zoom in on this concept. What is the kingdom of God doing on earth under David's leadership? How is the kingdom functioning? Is it growing? Is it shrinking? Is it taking over and spreading like wildfire that could be seen by all? 
Is it leaven in bread that's invisible to the eye? How are we to regard God's kingdom and his kingdom purposes, his kingdom efforts as they existed under David's rule? So we will see some episodes that are very foreign to us. We will also see great lyrical song. In fact, the largest section here is poetry or lyrical song. It's filled with insight, and yet for many of us, these chapters may feel opaque rather than translucent. They might feel hard to see or see through rather than what we long for regularly, which is to see clearly and easily. Let's be real with each other. We like non-effort, right? I mean, we, nobody invents a remote control if they're not in love with less effort. Most of our modern conveniences are created and designed and proliferated because we don't like effort. Chapter before us today requires effort. It requires trust. It requires curiosity. It requires a boatload of background information. But most of all, most of all, it comes asking us to trust that there is great precision and organization to these chapters. And we will see that unfold in the weeks ahead. But make no mistake, you have to buckle up. You have to rub your eyes, sip your coffee, and get ready to bite down on your mouthpiece and get to work. Okay? Let me give you some markers to look for. I'll give you four. First, oaths. Oaths. Oaths are far more important to most people in their day than it is in our day. Curses. Curses will be the central important reality of this episode. Guilt. Everybody loves guilt, right? The older you get, the better you are at passing it out. Well, nobody's older than God, right? You will see guilt, and you will also see atonement. Now, we like atonement, yes? You're not here in a Reformed Presbyterian church because atonement isn't something you expect to hear, let's be honest, weekly, right? But sometimes we get lost in the proverbial dynamics of atonement. We love the theology and the concept, the efficacy and power, but we are thousands of years removed from the horrors of atonement, from the ghastly and grotesque brutality 
of atonement. As we come to this chapter and this episode, we must agree that we are missionaries heading into a foreign land to seek insight and understanding that is not common to us. Oaths, curses, covenants, guilt, atonement, these religious buzzwords are on full display and full reference for us to understand this episode. So as we begin today's text, let's understand that the events of this episode take somewhere backwards in time. This is not the chronological progression of David's kingdom. We're going to look back. This is a flashback. And we're going to go back into the time after 2 Samuel 9 and before David's self-exile in the revolt of Absalom. So we don't know exactly the moment that this takes place, but we know the era. We know the timing in a general sense. This is during King David's reign after 2 Samuel 9, and we see that more clearly in verse 7, because David has already welcomed the son of Jonathan, Jonathan the son of Saul, Mephibosheth to his table. So let's begin where they begin. They jump back in time. Verse, chapter 21, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. Anybody hungry? Anybody worried about where their next meal is going to come from? Or are you guys creatively deciding what restaurant feels good today? What, what pot roasts are we going to cook up? What sauces might we taste today? Where will we go and how will we get it? Anybody here under the, are we going to get it? Am I going to eat today? I ate yesterday. Do we have enough for me to eat today? This is so foreign to us, yes? Famines happen elsewhere, and because of our resources and our technology and all these other things, we in this room really don't wonder. But a three-year famine in David's day is death, multiplied by death, squared by death. And it's not just ordinary death that takes place here, is it? The livestock are dying. The people are dying. The crops are dying. Everything is dying. For three years. None of the finances of the people in this room would hold up as they are for the next three years without anything new happening. Most of us, if we're careful and older and wise, begin stashing away a little bit of extra money and we get our Dave Ramsey three to six month liquid. Nothing would have to change in our lifestyle. If you don't know what I'm talking about, come see me. We can talk about your finances. 
Not that I'm an expert in action, but I understand a lot of theories. (laughs) Nobody has extra resources in a three-year famine. All the bank accounts are emptying faster than you've ever imagined. You want to talk stock market crash? How about livestock market crash? What do you do when you're the king of a people with fewer and fewer resources, fewer and fewer provisions, more and more death? You would want to know why, right? How many times do you bang on God's door asking why? Even when you know he isn't going to answer that question for you. Don't you still bang on the door? Don't you still push and ask and beg, cajole, try to bribe? Why? We misunderstand this whole episode. If we miss God's mercy on display in this first verse. It's easy to miss because famine can be in bold letters for us, yes? But David sought, as king, he sought on behalf of his people, what? What did he seek out? What was he looking for? The face of God. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping, providing God. David seeks God's face and asks him a question. Stop for a minute. David gets to ask God specific questions with an expectation of what? Specific answers. That's insane, right? He's not howling at the moon. He's seeking the Lord's face. And he's saying, Lord, famine, sinner, I get it. I get that we're ugly. I get that we're sinners. I get it, I get it, I get it. But three years, Lord? Three months Three hours? Okay, hours I sign up for. I can get a little trim, right? Weeks, months, years, three years? Oh, Lord. David gets to seek his face. And David expects to find the Lord that he's seeking. David expects that that Lord will receive him to hear his requests. This is covered in mercy that we can neglect if we do not learn to stop and sit in a passage. Does David find Yahweh? Does Yahweh listen to his question? Miracle. It's a miracle. How many times have you thought of prayer as miraculous instead of obligation? It's that thing you're supposed to do. 
to be a good whatever. You get to ask God. And sometimes he says no. And sometimes he says wait. And sometimes he says yeah. Yeah. Should David expect to encounter the face of God? Does David know where to go to speak to God? Yes. And what we see happen next is miraculous. The Lord said. (laughs) What creature gets to ask its creator anything? Let alone a complex and intricate why question. Why, O oh Lord, do you do as you do? Why, O oh Lord, are we in famine? Why, O oh Lord, is death the only thing on the news? Fear. Theft. I mean, when we feel cornered, the Ten Commandments feel optional way too often. Yahweh spoke. Yahweh replied. He says back to David, and do not miss the specificity of the answer. This is not a vague, waxing, philosophical reply. This is not a who are you, I'm God, shut up and take it. This is, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house. And if I'm David, in this moment, in my heart, probably not passing through my lips, but inwardly I'm asking the question, what does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with my house, my livestock, my people, my nation? Saul's dead. We done did that. He's gone. And in fact, most of his house is gone. Some concubines with some young men, yes. But like, by and large, gone. What does that have to do with me? Everything. It has everything to do with you. And we're told why. There's blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. What? We, there, he did, what? Be David. You, you're three years of famine because Saul went on a murder spree? Yeah. Ask yourself this question in this passage. Is what unfolds justice? Where, oh, where is justice? Where can it be found? There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he killed the Gibeonites, putting them to death or seeking to end them. What they know, what what David knows, is often what we haven't put together yet, 
is that everything that happens in this episode is directly attached to something that happened under the life and leadership of Joshua in the book of Joshua, chapter 9. So let me see if I can do this summary. I'll try and explain it, but there's too much, so let me sum up. You're welcome. Joshua has just led to the crushing defeat of Jericho. Remember, the Israelites are crossing into Israel, taking the promised land and driving out or slaughtering all of the occupants therein. Tribe by tribe, people group by people group, because of geography. They're literally just moving forward into the land that God had promised. What would you do if you were there and you heard what happened at Jericho? They marched around us, blew some trumpets, our walls crumbled. What kind of sonic technology is that? And then all of a sudden, they're wiped out. Now, you're a small enclave. You're like a, an overgrown tribe at this point. That's who the Gibeonites are. They're a remnant of a different ite, which is another way of talking about people groups. And they realize Israel's going to win. They've heard tell of the God who brought those plagues down in Egypt. They've heard tell about the Red Sea and the drowning of the Egyptian army. Remember, the Egyptian army is the most powerful military force in the known world. And they just drowned because God drowned them as they tried to pursue what didn't belong to them, the people of God. We have a different owner not named Pharaoh. So the Gibeonites are scared. Insert your favorite proverb, metaphor, analogy, thought. Their socks are not on. You can think about their pants, right? They're just, they're scared to death. So how do we not die? How do we not die? Let's trick them into making covenant with us so that they can't kill us. I mean, I like the not killing us part. How do we trick them? This is so hilarious and awful and hilarious. They take all their thrift store stuff and put it on. And then they mud it up and wear it out they take all their trash, their used wineskins, and they pretend that they've been on this long journey to get to where they are so that when they encounter Joshua and the leaders of Israel, they will not look like residents of the promised land. They look like foreigners who have sojourned or sort of taken a nomadic ride to be where they are. Nomadic journey. 
Old wineskins, crumbly bread. There's this great line as they're talking. Read Joshua 9 this week. It'll help. But literally, they talk about the crumbling, dried out nature of the bread. And they show them the crumbly bread. And they're like, this was hot when we left home. Is that true? No, this is a giant lie. It's a giant trick. But Joshua and the leadership of Israel become convinced and they're willing not to slaughter them if they will become servants to the tabernacle, servants to Israel, chopping wood. We take chopped wood for granted, don't we? Or most of us don't even need chopped wood anymore to heat our homes, true? But imagine trying to keep the altar of God, this bronze flaming altar in the courtyard of the tabernacle, lit so that every Jew alive can come and put their sacrifices on it. Not only is the grill enormous, but the wood required to keep it aflame. Enormous times enormous, you get the picture. So Joshua fails to seek the Lord for an answer about what to do. You'll see this in Joshua 9, verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions, Israel received from the Gibeonites, some of their possessions, their provisions, this crumbly bread but did not ask counsel from Yahweh. And Joshua made peace with the Gibeonites and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore. That's oath language. They swore that they would not wipe out these Gibeonites. And then in 19, the trick becomes available to them. They understand that they've been tricked, but all the leaders of Israel, Joshua and company, say to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by Yahweh, the God of Israel, that now we may not touch them. How many of you keep your oaths? How many of you swear oaths? How many of you understand that when you're in the office of the community, not just a person of the community, but you're charged by the community in a certain role that when you take oath as an officer of that church, as an officer in that community, that the whole community is bound by it because that's what representative function does. It's a form of mediation. So when Joshua and the leaders of Israel swear to the Gibeonites, we will not kill you. It doesn't mean that, the, that Joshua and his 12 buddies won't kill them. It means Israel will not 
kill the Gibeonites. And it is not binding with a time frame. Israel is not to slaughter Gibeonites. Now, let's ask the question in a very simple way. Should Israelites murder? We have a commandment about that, right? But these Gibeonites are now protected, not just by the commandment of the Lord for his covenant people, binding throughout all time and all places to all people, his moral law, but now there's a functional relationship sworn to by covenant. If you're not sure how gravity, how, how gravitas making a covenant is, understand it by reading Genesis 15. Go back to the first book of the Bible. In the 15th chapter, you see Abraham prepare to make covenant as God instructs him. And it's a bloody mess. What happens is they bring certain animals, defined and explained by God, specified, if you will, and they cut them head to toe in half. So imagine somebody taking a sword and splitting me bilaterally so that my right falls to the right and my left falls to my left. Ook. Yeah, ooh, right? <laughs> if that's ooing, you're in trouble. Line up a whole string of them. Make, a, make an aisle through these bloody halves. And then, to make covenant, they pass through those pieces. And what you're declaring by whomever you swear a name of, that they may do to you what you have done to these pieces. In other words, if I fail to live up to the bargain I'm making, if I don't keep this contract, no. If I break my oath of covenant, may I be as they are, and they are, and they are, and they, 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 all of them. Messy, gory, strange. Strange to us. Anybody here sign contracts that way? I'm calling PETA. Right? Nobody does this anymore. When you swear an oath in their day, it is binding in a way and to a degree we can't really relate to because it's by blood and not by convenience. The penalties are not death when we make covenants. The penalties are usually gold or silver. But did you notice that the Gibeonites don't want any gold or silver for this? The Gibeonites in David's day do not want payment. They make this clear in verse 2. So the king called the Gibeonites, speaking to them, and the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but a remnant of the Amorites, although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them. Have you seen that to your satisfaction? 
So Saul had sought to strike them down because he's an idiot. And also he was being overzealous in his national pride. He wanted no outsiders inside. So he goes on a murder spree. Verse 3. David then says to the Gibeonites, what do we do? How do we fix the broken oath between us? What do you want? Every husband knows this question. (laughs) What do you want? I know I messed up. How do I make it right? Please don't put me to death. What do I do? The Gibeonites reply. Verse 4, it's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. Here's the conundrum. If an Israelite goes on a murdering spree, what happens to them? Sorry, I know we just did Absalom. What should happen to them? Executed, right? Government execution. Yes, dead, gone, over. He breaks covenant with the people that he's bound to in taking human life and spilling human blood. So by man will his blood be spilt. Right? Genesis 9-6. Look it up, memorize it, come back to it. But they don't want, they don't want to go to court. They don't want a judgment. They don't want money. They want the curses of the covenant oathed to them upheld. Whenever you make a covenant, sorry, whenever you cut a covenant, right? You cut the pieces and walk through them, you cut a covenant. Anytime you cut a covenant, you have blessings for obedience. If you live up to the bargain, then this is what you get as an outcome. If you don't live up to the bargain, then this is the penalty you pay. Well, this was not just a small oath. This was the big boy, the covenant. It's a death covenant. So they want justice according to the covenant that was oathed to them. I have to stop for a second and say, this is one of the least pragmatic passages I've ever seen in my life. You got that oath through deception and deceit, right? Why on earth would we uphold our end of the contract when we only entered into the contract in your misrepresentation of who you were? Right? Doesn't, isn't that what appellate judges try and do, right? We shouldn't have entered into this contract. It was entered into in bad faith or under uh, derision or false pretenses. That's my lawyer right there. <laughs> Why on earth would you uphold an oath that you only got tricked into holding? Because you invoked the name of Yahweh. You invoked the name of Yahweh and you made a death covenant. The Gibeonites deserve immunity and Saul ignored it. 
So when Saul attempted to wipe out the Gibeonites, he was violating Israel's oath. Saul desecrated Yahweh's reputation by violating the oath that Israel had sworn in Yahweh's name. There's three outcomes that we have to pay attention to this breaking of the oath. When Saul broke the oath, three things happened. One, Yahweh's reputation was besmirched. Two, there were actual covenant breakers who will require the covenant curses to be upheld on them. And three, the land is affected in the spilling of innocent blood. The land, the people who break covenant, and Yahweh's honor. Violating an oath from a previous generation doesn't seem like a big deal to us. But the issue here in 2 Samuel 21 is fixated on Yahweh's honor. So let's look at these three things briefly. First, Yahweh's reputation. Breaking an oath sworn in Yahweh's name is a huge violation of the third commandment found in Exodus 20, verse 7. Here's the commandment. You shall not misuse the name of Yahweh your God, for Yahweh will not hold anyone, what's the word? Who misuses his name. Can you break the third commandment and not expect Yahweh to uphold the violation of that commandment against you? Can Yahweh's name be depended upon? Does Yahweh's name guarantee anything when you speak it in these oaths? If Israel breaks their oaths constantly, then it looks like God's name has no honor, no value, no trust behind it. There's no guarantee in invoking his name. In other words, Yahweh's reputation is on the line because it forces people to ask the question, can Yahweh be trusted? And the answer to that is always, of course, yes. Second, the covenant breakers Swearing an oath in Yahweh's name also means that those who swear the oath are asking Yahweh himself to bring to bear the curses established in the covenant down upon any or all who break that oath or covenant. In other words, you're not just asking God for the credit of his name you're also asking him to enforce the promises, the blessings, and the curses in that covenant. He is not just the capital you're referencing in the deal. He's the judge who oversees that people live out these responsibilities. In other words, there's more than blood guilt from Saul's murdering spree. It involves all of these elements because in breaking the covenant, Saul, and therefore Saul's descendants, 
are actively being cursed by God. They're actively being cursed by God because of Saul's guilt. I taste relief sometimes when I read of guilt in the scriptures because I know that guilt can be dealt with, right? Guilt can be dealt with. So in the middle of all this bleak, weird, strange, hard everything, we can at least know it's going somewhere, right? Isn't it going towards an atonement? Yes. And third, so we have Yahweh's rep, the covenant breakers third, the land itself is cursed, Verse 1, Yahweh tells David that this three-year famine is directly tied to Saul's oath-breaking butchery, and it's polluted the land of Israel. And that is a leap we don't know how to make if God had not said, get happy, there's actually an explained answer here. Numbers chapter 35, verse 33. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. This is not how we live, okay? I know this is a road trip back like 3,000 years. But we have to take this text on its own terms. So Joshua and the Israel's leader swore an oath on behalf of Israel the nation, which includes the promised land that was being given to them. Saul as king represents the nation. When Saul broke Israel's covenant with Gibeon, he didn't just do it as an individual, nor did he just do it as head of his own tribe, but he was the highest court in all of Israel. In other words, this was a personal, tribal, and national cursing. It extended so far as to cover the land itself as well. Now, let's take a modern day time out for a second as a pastor. I don't get many of these. I'm going to use one right here. How much do you relish in the land promises of God's atonement? Is that like the thing that you wake up for in the morning? Or is that the like, yeah, and there's that whole kind of land promise deal. I wonder what that's about. Ooh, new episode. Click. You guys spend lots of time on the land promise. Why is it like this specific land by that boundary and this river and all of the other pieces to it? That's way too specific and abstract for most of us. Yes? Here's the deal. Jesus tells us that the meek inherit the earth. This is how the covenant of grace functions. It expands. It it expands. 
the promise of a small portion of land in the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea is not the end goal. It is a typology that we might see the grander, greater future that's being purchased and provided for us. We don't think about land, mostly because we're Americans and we have more land than we know what to do with. We sell it and get rich. We invest it, rent it. But we don't understand what it really means to have the land involved in the covenant promise for Israel. Well, today's an introduction to that idea, I hope. Yahweh's wrath must be satisfied. In other words, the curse of this Gibeonite covenant must be carried out. And in order for us to understand what happens going forward, I want you to understand two essential elements. The first, this story, as it follows, will be brutal. It will be brutal in a way we don't see portrayed in our lives. It's going to have blood guilt and curses and atonement which is unbelievably messy. Leviticus 1, verses 3 through 9. Add them to that journal you're going to look at this week. There are six things that a young man must do when he's bringing atonement to himself. Leviticus 1, 3, 9. The first, he would tow a young bull to the tabernacle's courtyard. You guys ever take your dog for a walk? Big dog, a little bit harder. Micah's dog, really hard. <laughs> if you haven't seen Bo, he's a beast. Now take a bull for a walk. Easy, hard. It's brutal. Imagine towing and dragging and conjoling and prodding. You think it's hard to get your kids to come to church some mornings? To get your husband out of bed some Saturdays? Dragging a bull to the tabernacle's courtyard. Second, he lays his hands on the head of that bull. This is the doctrine of expiation, which I don't have time for today. And then he would slit the throat of the bull. And all the blood would spill out. And the priests would come and gather that blood in bowls. And throw it against the altar. So that the bull would be united to the altar. So that what takes place on the altar would be connected to the one who laid his hands on that bull. This is the Mosaic Sacrificial System 101. After slitting the bull's throat, he would then skin the carcass. We use the term flay. And then he would chop it up into bits, cut it into pieces. This is not cutting your steak at dinner. This is a giant animal. How dirty are your clothes? from moments like this. 
They chop it up to pieces. They throw it on the grill. And then lastly, because not enough messy has happened, you wash the innards and the legs of the carcass of the animal that's left over. You bring, you lay your hands, you kill, you fillet, you cut, and then you wash. Grossed out yet? My hunters are like, no. That's called dinner. But for most of us, this is grotesquely messy. It's grotesque, this atonement thing. So what happens next? The Gibeonites say, well, Saul's gone, so give me seven of the members of his house, men who will stand as his substitute. And we'll take them and we'll impale them on the rocks on the big hill in front of Yahweh. Does your skin crawl a little bit, just a little bit, at the thought of killing seven men almost indiscriminately? David's going to pick the seven men. He's going to protect Mephibosheth. And he's going to offer seven men. They're going to get impaled and hung on the rocks. And they're going to be there until they sanguinate. And then they're on display. Don't break oaths with the Gibeonites. Don't break oaths with Yahweh. Don't break oaths. And then we're told a mother of two of the men who died were her sons. Telling you guys, we talk a lot about Father God's love in the Bible, right? But take a look at motherly love and understand it well reflects God in this moment. A mother of two Boys, men who have been sacrificed, grab some cloth, which is weird for us. It's a blanket. She grabs a blanket and she goes out and she protects by day and by night the seven corpses that are hanging on the wall. She protects them, we're told, from the birds of the air, buzzards, and from the animals of the ground, leopards or mountain lions. She beats back those who would dismember or eat, consume the bodies there displayed. Is this gross enough yet? Is this messy enough yet for you? How much sleep did she get? You guys see birds circling the air, and you know what they're there for, yes? This is not, hey, let's go for a ride today. This is, let's go find food today. Seven human beings standing as substitutes for Saul, for Saul's house, for Israel, and even for the land. 
And when all is said and done, in verse 14, what do we get? (sighs) Sorry. The end of verse 14, we're told, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. If we take seriously the theology of the beginning of verse 1 and the ending of this episode in verse 14, we have to say that on some level, God accepted these actions as payment. God responds to the plea. Yahweh accepted these measures taken in this gruesome episode to turn away his wrath for Saul's covenant breaking. The oath is fulfilled in the application of the curses. I've heard it said a few times in my life that I don't worry about the scriptures that confuse me when I have no understanding. I have plenty to work on with the scriptures I do understand. Got me? I studied this. I read, I researched, I thought. And I have to agree with Dale Ralph Davis who says the stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. I'll give it again. The stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. In other words, atonement is ugly. It's ghastly. It's grotesque. It's horrific. Atonement is not just a theologically beautiful concept. It is derived and embedded with the insights that can be applied in those ways. But functionally, we have moved away so far from the gore of what our guilt requires that we fail to apprehend clearly the grotesqueness of our sin and guilt. So what are we supposed to do? I ask the question often, what's the theological witness of this text? Sometimes I try to be pithy. Sometimes I try to speak with power and authority. Today I'm sad. This passage makes me overwhelmingly sad. Sad at all the death, sad at all the blood. This is a pitiful vigil of a mother whose sons have been sacrificed to God. Am I touching any nerves yet? Are you wanting to look away? Are these things you haven't settled in your own heart? Good, I am with you. You are not alone in those questions. You're not alone in those curiosities. You're not alone in wanting to run away and never see this text again. And yet with me and yet God gave it to us and yet it's true and yet it's part of the foundation by which we understand everything else that comes here's my final concluding thought 
drink deeply of the gore of atonement. Pause in this terribly uncomfortable place and thought. Don't wiggle away. Don't run your mind somewhere else. Stay here in this sorrow. Stay here in this despair. Stay here thinking about how horrible it would be to try and beat the animals and the birds away from the rotting corpse of your son. Asking, is there meaning here? Asking, is there purpose here? Is that God really there? Is this famine really tied to that? Or is this just another manipulation by a king who's scared of a rival son taking his throne? Is that God real? Is that God trustworthy? How can that God be good. This is what covenant breaking looks like. And this is what makes the cross of Good Friday communicable to us. If we do not drink deeply the gore we will not exhale joyfully the freedom and power and goodness of God's atonement. It is the bad news that makes the good news great. Heavenly Father, we come to you messy, ugly, far more than we've ever imagined, far more than we could be aware in any given moment. And yet you are with us. You are with us. You are with us. And we rejoice that the oath, though broken, was upheld and that the bones were buried together in an honoring of Saul's household as a living testimony that that debt is paid that those relationships have left from alienation to adoration. Lord, your atoning work is a mystery we long to understand more and more. Speak to us, we beg, in Jesus' name. And all God's people agree.